You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. All right, we're going to turn to scripture now. Turn to Isaiah 35. That's what we're going to read this morning. And we'll hear these opening six verses of Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come, he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. When the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Thank you, Emily, for reading. Well, the first thing I think of when it comes to jumping for joy is watching football games with my son, my oldest son, sitting on the couch and taking in all the highs and lows of Minnesota Vikings football. I didn't share this story at the first service, but I remember when the Minneapolis miracle happened, when Stefan Diggs caught that ball against the Saints. We had my parents over. We jumped for joy and shouted so loud that our dog got frightened, thought the end of the world was coming. <laughs> well, we have so much fun. Lennox, my son, is, he's a big fan. He knows the stats and the players better than I do. And now when we watch, we'll watch on the couch, but it usually happens like right when the little guys are in nap time after lunch. And so it must look like a silent film because now when a big play happens, we're jumping. I mean, I've almost dislocated my arm from fist pumping, and, but we're shouting in whispers so that we don't wake the little guys down the hallway. Well, fall is for football season, and so has been this series that we are wrapping up today on the biblical image of deer. This is our last Sunday before Advent begins. When you come back next week, we'll have our Advent wreath out and light that first candle. But this has been a wonderful little study in November. We started in Psalm 42 with the words, As the deer pants for streams of water the opening lines of that psalm. And then Andrew took us last week to Habakkuk 3, and we had this line, He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And now today we turn to Isaiah 35. I do want to point out our original series had four Sundays, and we changed up one of the weeks, the first week, so that we could focus on our financial health and do some teaching on biblical giving. So if you want to explore that passage that we didn't have time to do, it would be Psalm 18. Psalm 18, a psalm that is very close to Esther and I. We memorized portions of it when our twin daughters, who are now 14, were born premature and a lot of days spent at the hospital down at Abbott and Children's Minneapolis. So look for the deer in Psalm 18 and you'll find it there. Of course, there's many other passages in the Bible where God utilizes the image of a deer. We just studied a few. So we had the deer panting, the deer standing on a mountain, and now today leaping in the air. One of our leadership team members, JC, showed me a video. 
think just last week, showed me a video of a deer doing something I'd never seen before. It was doing exactly this. It was leaping in the air, jumping around like it was on a trampoline. And I said to JC, I've never seen a deer do that before. And got to do a little homework this week. So it was a mule deer. That's the key. And a mule deer and a blacktail will do something called stotting. S-T-O-T-T. Have you ever heard of that before or seen it? Some of you outdoors folks. So here's what they think a deer is doing. It's signaling to a predator. So think wily coyote. And the deer is saying, I'm strong. I'm fast. You're never going to catch me. They call it an honest signal, honest signaling, and it works. So the predator saves his energy. It actually benefits both of them. The predator says, all right, I can see. I'm not going to catch you, and doesn't expend his energy on an unsuccessful hunt. The prey, the deer, is free and clear of danger. So that's what mule deer and blacktails will do and other deer in other parts of the world. What do whitetails do? I was curious what does a whitetail do? Because they don't stot, they don't leap like that. When they see a predator, they run. <laughs> They're one of the fastest deer on the planet. They can sprint up to 40 miles an hour and sustain speeds of 30. And that's why we don't see deer stot where we live. We just see them as they occasionally run into our cars. So let's Enough with deer behavior. We'll keep moving and we'll come back to the deer at the end of the passage. A deer, at least in Isaiah, that is jumping for joy. So let's talk about Isaiah before we look at the verses that we read. This guy was a prophet about 700 years before Jesus was born. God used him in a powerful way to speak to his people at a time when the nation of Israel was split into two. And so I've got a map for you to see what that looked like. You've got the northern kingdom that retained the name. They would call that Israel. And then the southern kingdom was called Judah, named after one of the tribes that was down there. Isaiah was located in the south, but in the time period that he's living in, he served under four kings, he can see there is disaster coming for the north, which fell during his lifetime to the Assyrians. Isaiah lived in a really rough time. There were external threats. So picture him there in Judah. There's external threats from other nations around. And internally, he's watching as society is crumbling apart and the people are far from God. And as I thought about that this week, I thought, well, that that may sound a little like our own experience today, where we see external threats and challenges from other parts of the world hostile nations with terrible intentions, peace can seem like a pretty fragile thing. And at the same time, we can look within our own country and we might find ourselves grieving a lack of virtue or simply aware that our own people can be pretty far from God. Isaiah speaks to this in his own time and he speaks to it in ours. In chapter 34, the one right before We read along with Emily, we see the nation of Edom turned into a desert. I want to just talk about this chapter because it relates to 35. So the chapter before, Edom is turned into a desert. And Edom is a nation that, in a sense, is representing all of the nations that are opposed to God and really warring against his good ways. 
And when that's the case, the picture of the desert is that everything dries up. There's no water. It's desolate out there. But then in the next chapter, in Isaiah 35, we see God come and transform his people into a garden. Like the deer, God is using this imagery to communicate a deeper truth to us. Gardens and deserts are the visual symbol to show us something else. And the deeper truth in these chapters is about trust. It would go something like this. If you trust in the strength of a nation or you trust in human strength, you'll get a desert. No water, no life. But if you place your trust in God, you'll be like a garden. And the best news of all is that it's never too late. Even deserts can come back to life. So that for some context, we'll look now at the verses that we read. Here's the opening lines. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. And you look at those words and you see such an emphasis on joy. The verbs, be glad, rejoice, rejoice greatly, shout for joy. We're jumping for joy in this passage before we ever even get to the deer that we'll look at later. In our first week in Psalm 42, I made reference to an old praise song from the 80s and 90s that's called As the Deer. And I realized this week the author also picks up the theme of joy later in the song. You alone are the real, anybody know the song? Joy giver. You alone are the real joy giver and the apple of my eye. The author of joy is God. All joy comes from his hand. And so one of the temptations then that will be set in our path is this idea that we can create our own joy. Joy is something I can produce, I can find, I can self-realize. But the Bible says you can't. You can't do it because joy only flows from God. Psalm 16, you will fill me with joy In your presence, it says, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That explains why maybe you've seen this before, why someone can be sick, poor, or in pain, and yet still have joy. Maybe you can think of an example. Certainly last week, Habakkuk was an old example for us. It also explains how you can have money, success, relationships, all the markers of making it, and yet feel utterly empty. Joy is not circumstantial. It is proximal. That means it's not dependent on what's going on around you. That doesn't determine the joy. The question is if you are in the proximity of the one who brings joy. There was a Y group or two. Maybe some of you uh, were part of the Y groups that studied the book He's Where the Joy Is by Tara Lee Cobble. The title's so good. He is where the joy is. So let's follow this theme a a little further. In the next line that we'll read in a minute, we won't get there yet, I want to tell you about these place names so that when we read it, 
if you feel something more than, than just these foreign names. Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon are the names. These are three of the most beautiful, fertile places in all of the Bible. Lebanon was famous for its cedar trees. In fact, uh, the Lebanese flag still has the cedar tree right in the middle. And then Mount Carmel was a mountain ridge that ran 24 miles long in northern Israel. It's still there. It sounds like it's from the game Candyland is what it makes me think of, Mount Carmel. But Carmel is a Hebrew word that means God's vineyard, his orchard, his garden. And at the foot of Mount Carmel, there's a 50-mile plain that's called Sharon, that's covered in vegetation. Song of Songs, a little book of the Bible, speaks of the Rose of Sharon. If you've ever heard that term before, one of the many flowers of the plain. So that's the context for these names. And I want to invite you to think of places that are more familiar to us. Places like the Boundary Waters, or the Rocky Mountains, or the Great Plains. Those names mean something to us as Americans. It's why Lee Greenwood named all those places in his song, God Bless America. All those special landmarks that he lists in his song. In Isaiah's day, it was Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon. And so with that in mind, let's read again what it says in verse 2. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. Now let me interject. What's the it? We have to remember what came in verse 1. The garden, the barren wilderness, the glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Have you seen one of those desert time-lapse videos before? You know, in those regions of the world where they see so little rainfall, but then sometime in the year there's this rain that hits the desert and the flowers just bloom. They call it a super bloom, actually. That's maybe the tiniest picture of what is happening here. The glory of God shows up. His presence, like those rains, floods in and it brings complete transformation. The desert comes to life. And let's remind ourselves, what is the desert symbolic of? So the intent here is not to talk about literal deserts. This is a picture of the human heart. Whether it's an individual, a people group, a nation, the human heart is desolate and devoid of life if it does not live for the glory of God. Glory is such a significant theme in Isaiah. We see that any attempt for people, for us, to seek our own glory will end in disaster. But the one who wants to see God's glory, who yearns for his presence, will have life. And as John 10 says, will have it abundantly. This passage, you read these descriptions, it's just full of descriptors of abundance. It's saying this is what God can do in dry and weary places, especially in the human heart. So let me just recognize, though, that you might be taking this in, all this business about joy and transformation, and you could say, well, that's well and good, but it's way easier said than done. You might be saying to yourself right now, This guy up there doesn't have a clue as to the big stuff that I'm dealing with right now. There are things in my life that are just plain scary or unsolvable. 
or too complicated for the ideals of this passage. Could be some of the thoughts or objections that we have. And it's almost like Isaiah knows what we're thinking. Look at what he says in verse 3. It's almost like he heads this off at the pass. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. More word pictures. You see them? Feeble and weak hands, knees that give way, and fearful hearts. These are pictures of helplessness, of someone beset by fear. Isaiah gets it. Going back to our objections, he is not making light of anything that might be represented in this room, anything that you have gone through or are in when he speaks of joy. He is saying these words to a people who are facing under the real threat of the Assyrians marching in. And I remember this from biblical backgrounds class in seminary. If I had to describe to you what the Assyrians did to people where they invaded, I wouldn't do it. This is the context, by the way, for Jonah. You know why Jonah wants nothing to do with the Ninevites? Because of what they did to people. Isaiah knew. And God knows the things that paralyze you. He knows what causes your knees to buckle and fill your heart with fear. And so he says, be strong. Do not fear. And then watch this, because one thing to say that, but now God gives the basis for it. Here's why he can command you to be strong and not be afraid. Look at verse 4, second half of the verse. Your God will come. That's it right there. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And that's the reason that answers the question, how can I be strong in light of this? Why don't I need to be afraid? Because God is coming. And whatever comes at me here can't hold a candle to the presence and power of God. My Savior is coming. I think this passage is the perfect setup to Advent. Next Sunday we'll be back and we'll light the Advent wreath and have a passage from earlier in Isaiah, chapter 9, that says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, feeble hands, knees giving out, fear in my heart, a light has dawned on those who are exactly in that place. God is coming. The world's a mess. We're a mess. I'm a mess. But my Savior is coming. There's a reason that Isaiah is the most quoted book in the entire New Testament. He has such a clear view of the coming Messiah. And not just his first coming as we think about Christmas, but also the second coming of Christ. This passage says that God will come with vengeance and divine retribution. And those words can feel like big foreign words to us. They certainly don't really land on the heartstrings or have a strong emotional pull. But if you have ever seen blatant injustice or wondered why the wicked prosper, if you've ever been angered at the trampling of innocent people 
or witness the suffering of believers on a mission trip in another part of the world, then you know something about divine retribution. You know something about the vengeance that Jesus will carry out in Revelation 19 when he comes again. But here, as we think of the immediate, when Jesus arrives in the Gospels the first time around, he begins to establish his kingdom and he begins by toppling injustice and lifting up the weak. And that's where the text goes in verses 5 and 6. It says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer. There's our jumping deer. And the mute tongue shout for joy. The blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute. See those four categories in the passage? Anyone in that kind of condition in Bible times would have been considered next to dead and pretty much worthless. Worthless to society, worthless to their family. Not because the Bible says that, but that was like the cultural norm back in that time. So in John 9, this is what's behind it when the disciples see a blind man and they say to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And you can see they're operating in the default theology of their time. If you had a physical disability, if you got sick, people thought, well, you must have deserved it. God knew and and you had it coming to you. But Jesus calls that out and he corrects his disciples in that story. And we see him in the Gospels consistently seek out the blind, the deaf, the lame, and the mute. To the point that when John the Baptist sends a couple of his own disciples to ask the question, are you the Messiah or should we expect someone else? Jesus says to them in Luke 7, he says, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Isaiah 35. And it's like Jesus is saying, John, yes, I am the Messiah. I'm the one. Focusing in on the lame that leap like a deer, since that's our November highlight, two passages in particular come to my mind. The first is the healing of the paralytic in Luke 5. That's where there's these four friends who take their friend to see Jesus. He's, he's on a stretcher or a mat, and the room is so, the house is so crowded, they take him up to the roof and they lower him down from above. And he drops down on the mat in front of Jesus, and Jesus says, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And he does. The man rolls up his mat, and it says he goes home praising God. That's the first story. The other one is an even closer parallel to Isaiah 35, and it comes from Acts 3. Peter and John are heading to the temple to pray, and a man is being carried to the temple gate who has been paralyzed since birth. So we don't know how old he is, but he's, he's all grown up. He's a man. He's never walked a day in his life. And they take him to the temple gate to beg when Peter and John walk by, and he asks them for money. Peter looks at him and says, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then let me read. I want to read this part. What happens next? 
Acts 3, 7. Taking him by the right hand, so that's Peter, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet. So he's not just standing, but he jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping, walking and jumping and praising God. And I love that this picture is captured in Isaiah. That when healing comes, the lame don't just get up and shuffle off to recover further. No, they get up and they're leaping like a deer. And the mute doesn't just let out a squeak like the tin man. You know, when he can start to talk again, he's got the oil. But the mute, his mouth is loosed and he can shout for joy. It's a total transformation from desert to garden. So I want to ask you as we wrap up our study this morning, where you think you're at in this transformative process. Where is your joy meter at? Are you leaping or limping? Are you shouting or muttering? I'll be honest here, as I studied this passage this week, as I ask myself these questions, I realized, oh, I really need to hear this. I don't think my joy meter's been in a real good spot. You know, and here's the week of Thanksgiving. What's going on? But I said to my wife yesterday, I said, I just, I feel like it's been a grind lately. Some of you know that, right? I mean, I'm telling, being honest, but I, I know. Not much joy. And then at the same time, it's like God assigns the sermons to me that I need to hear. And so I'm, I'm in Isaiah 35. And I'm reading, The desert and the parched land will be glad. You'll see the glory of the Lord. I'm reading lines that say to me, Strengthen the hands, steady the knees. God will come to save you. And I don't know how that strikes you, but I thought, wow, even the hard days aren't as hard when you hear words like that. So how is God calling you to take up his word this morning? Are you wandering around in the wilderness? Or are you practicing the presence of God? Are you feeling discouraged in the desert? Or are you drinking living water from a relationship with Jesus? If you are in a tough place this morning, or maybe just weighed down by the things of the world, there's such good news in this passage. Water will gush forth in this wilderness like streams in the desert. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for how your word revives and refreshes the soul. And Lord, we pray that your life-giving water would really fall on the dry and parched places of our hearts and minds this morning. Lord, we thank you that joy is not ours to produce or to pretend, 
or to somehow find, but that you bring it with your very presence, Lord. I pray, Lord, that your transformative work would continue in each one of us. Lord, I pray that we would be open to that, that we would seek it, that we would long for you. Your word says that you will satisfy those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We thank you, Lord, for your word that this is true. And we receive this promise, regardless of our circumstance, joyfully today. Praying in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.